The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. On this episode of Science for the People, we're talking about how heavy metals end up in birds. Later on, Rochelle will speak to Alex Bond about mercury in Arctic gulls. But before we get to that, I'll be chatting with Matthew Podolsky about how lead finds its way into Californian condors. Stay tuned. This is Science for the People, and I'm Desiree Shell. I'm joined by Matthew Podolsky. Matthew helped found Wild Lens in 2011 with the goal of bringing biologists and filmmakers together to produce films that would have an impact on critically important wildlife conservation issues. He served as producer and co-director of the award-winning documentary Bluebird Man. He's a producer on the Eyes on Conservation documentary web series, and he serves as the host of the podcast of the same name. He also spent four years working as a biologist with the endangered California condor, spending time with the wild population of condors in Arizona and in Utah, as well as with the captive breeding program for condors in Boise, Idaho. He's here to talk about his first feature-length film, Scavenger Hunt. Matthew, very good to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So how did you become interested in this story? Well, I became interested in the story because I happened to get lucky and uh, land a job as a California condor field biologist. Um, so this was relatively soon after I graduated uh, college, uh, got my undergraduate degree um, from Ithaca College in upstate New York. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a, a connection, um, a, a former professor of mine who knew some of the folks who were working on the condor recovery program in Arizona. Um, uh, that's in the Grand Canyon region of northern Arizona. And uh, he hooked me up with this job and I showed up and, you know, knowing nothing about California condors, uh, the, the only uh, the only birds I'd worked with up until that point were songbirds. So, you know, I was jumping from songbirds to the, the largest flying land bird in North America with a wingspan of nine and a half to 10 feet. Um, so, uh, you know, and I I'd never lived out west before. So it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was an amazing experience. Um, and, and I was, you know, super lucky to end up in that position. And I ended up spending two years, uh, living in this remote desert area of northern Arizona and southern Utah and basically just following condors around, uh, using the radio telemetry equipment that we had. Every single condor has, um, or almost every single condor in the population, um, is, is hooked up with, um, uh, radio telemetry device. Um, so we're just following around, tracking movements. Um, and I guess to answer your question there, as far as how I became interested in the story, um, that I tell in the film Scavenger Hunt, um, I think it was about, it was about a year into that job in Arizona when I, I, I reached this point where I, I had this realization that, you know, Everything that I was doing as a part of the job, all, and it, it, this was a management job. It wasn't research. Um, you know, we were performing the tasks that were necessary to maintain, uh, the stability of this 
you know, small population of one of the most endangered bird species in the world. So the, you know, there we were uh, uh, managing this population of, um, you know, roughly 70 condors um, living in this remote area. And uh, I, I reached this point where I, I guess I realized that every single thing that we did, the only reason we had to do it was because of one issue. There was only one thing holding this population back from reaching a, a, a level where they could sustain themselves, where they would be self-sustaining and they wouldn't need biologists monitoring them and sort of, you know, taking care of them in a certain sense. Um, and that, that issue was this lead poisoning issue that, that we document, um, in the film Scavenger Hunt. And so I, I you know, I, I had a background in, in, uh, in film. Um, you know, I, I went to school for both, uh, cinema and photography as well as environmental science. Um, and so I, I guess I reached this point where I felt like I needed to do more than just the day-to-day -day management of the species. I needed to, to reach out to a, a wider audience with, um, with this message. Well, now you, you mentioned that almost every single California condor is tracked. So how endangered are we talking here? Um, so in the, in the early 80s, uh, in 1981, I believe, the, was the low point for the population. Uh, there were 22 individual birds left on the planet. Um, and so, yeah, and uh, jumping forward to uh, to today, um, and I, I just looked up the sort of most current population numbers, um, and so this is as of October 2014, there were 400, I think, 422 condors, and about half of those are in the captive breeding population, um, and about half of those are in the wild. So a little over 200 birds uh, living in the wild. Well, now, who first thought that lead might be an issue in the condor's decline? So there, there were indications early on in uh, uh, this sort of effort to, to bring the condors back from the brink of extinction that lead um, was uh, potentially an, an issue. You know, I mean, California condors, the, the populations, the population had been declining for in decline for a long time, right. leading up to the 80s, the point where. Uh, these biologists realized that there were only 22 birds left. In the early 1900s, the biologists that were studying them or that started to study them for the first time in the early 1900s, they knew that the population was low. They didn't know exactly how low and they knew that it was declining, but they didn't know why. From this period, you know, in the early 1900s when scientists really started to study this species, you know, all the way up through the 80s and even moving beyond the 80s and into the 90s and when they started re-releasing them back into the wild after the captive breeding program was successful, nobody knew what had caused this decline. I mean, uh, there, there were, uh, I mean, there were a lot of sort of contributing factors, right? Um, but there was this huge effort in sort of the mid 1900s um, to to save the California condor. Um, and the idea was this was led by one of the, the, the first uh, uh, biologists who um, really uh, took, re dedicated his career to studying the California condor. His name was Carl Coford. And uh, Carl Coford, uh, he, he dedicated his career to, to studying the California condor. And, and he sort of walked away uh, from his research with the conclusion that, um, that it, it was, it was an issue of habitat loss. Um, and it was an issue of habitat loss and also, uh, an, an interaction with humans. So he had this idea that, um, if, if people came too close to the condor, that condors needed these protected spaces, um, where, 
they wouldn't come into contact with people. Um, and so the, the, this actually led to the creation of the Sespi Condor Sanctuary in Southern California. Um, and for a, a long period of time, this was a wilderness area that humans were not allowed in. Um, I mean, you know, not like what we think of as wilderness areas now is like places where people can go and enjoy themselves. Right. And as long as they have the, you know, uh, cer- you know, certain, as long as they take these steps to, you know, leave no trace, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's an area that is there for us to enjoy. This is not the case. Uh, you, humans weren't allowed in here, you know, because there was this belief that, that we were going to disrupt, um, sort of, you know, the, the natural system of the condors and that that's what was leading to their decline. Um, un- unfortunately that turned out to be not at all true. <laughs> um, condors actually have this, uh, curiosity. So the, the biologist that I worked with on the condor program in Arizona, we called the condors, we called them flying monkeys. They're extraordinarily intelligent. That was sort of, that was sort of the, the internal joke we had. Um, you know, their uh, their their level of intel of their level of intelligence is comparable to um, to to the corvid. So, like ravens and crows, these birds that you know uh, uh, scientists are um, as they do more and more research on them, they're discovering that you know the the level of intelligence is um, that that ravens and, and crows and other corvids have um, is is staggering. Um, and and condors are on that same level for sure, and they have this natural curiosity. Um, and they really don't, you know, it, they really don't have an inherent fear of people. Um, and, you know, it, it, when you approach a condor, you know, you can, uh, that's why I tell people that the Grand Canyon is one of the best places to see condors because they, they'll fly right up to you. They'll fly five feet over your head. They'll land on a perch, you know, just a few feet from you on the rim of the canyon. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I, I think it, it depends on, on, on the area as far as how close you can get to a condor. Um, but, you know, if they're on a canyon rim and they know that all they have to do is take one step and, you know, stretch their wings out and be in the air and be safe, um, you know, they're, they're not going to hesitate to, to get up, up close with you. Um, and I think it stems from that, that curiosity and that intelligence. Um, but un- unfortunately, that has, you know, uh, sort of caused some problems for them um, over time. So if it's not an issue of, of habitat, how did they make the link between lead and the decline in the numbers? The first indicators that lead might be um, a problem for condors and that maybe lead was the problem all along, right, um, came in the early 80s. So what happened in, the, um, in, what happened in 1981 was... Uh, biologists discovered for the first time they got an accurate census of the population and they discovered how low the popula- the population numbers were they discovered there were only 22 birds um and this led to the first really intensive uh effort to study these birds and figure out what was happening and what was causing these declines um and so condors were for the first time outfitted with radio transmitters um and uh, you know, at, at this point, you know, there were so few birds out there, um, and they had also started trapping birds and bringing them into captivity um, to increase the gene pool for the captive population because there were a lot of biologists at the time that felt that that was the best shot of saving the species from extinction. Um, so, I mean, they had very, very low sample size um, for this, but... There were, of, of the condors that were outfitted with radio transmitters, four of them ended up dying. 
um, and because they had radio transmitters on them, but for the first time, biologists were able to recover the bodies of these dead condors, and three out of the four, um, when, you know, necropsies were performed, it was determined that they had died of lead poisoning. So that was the first indicator. How much lead does it take to do that? I, I don't know for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, nobody really knows uh, what exactly is that level um, that's going to, you know, uh, push a condor over the edge and, and, and lead to um, lead to its death. Right. Um, I, I, I know just anecdotally um, from my time working with the wild population of condors in Arizona that we saw blood lead levels of in condors that were just staggeringly high um, that would have absolutely killed a human. Um, I mean, we're talking blood. We, we had a few instances of condors that came in with blood lead levels that were, you know, five, 600 micrograms per deciliter. And to put that in comparison, um, the CDC considers any human exposure of lead, uh, any, any human blood lead level that is five micrograms per deciliter or higher, that's considered a clinical exposure. And you'll be admitted into a hospital if you have five micrograms per deciliter or higher of blood lead level in a human. And these condors are coming in with over a hundred micrograms per deciliter and they were still alive and they were still feisty, you know? Um, so, I mean, these birds are just being exposed repeatedly over and over and over again. Um, and, you know, the, the cumulative effects, I mean, that plays a role as far as whether or not a one particular exposure event is going to kill a bird um, because, you know, uh, these birds are being exposed uh, repeatedly numerous times um, over the course of each year of their lives. Um, and, you know, there, there hasn't been... Um, the, I mean, it, it's, you know, in order to figure out the answer to that question, you would have to design... Uh, a, a controlled study in which you were intentionally poisoning California condors with lead, and because the species is so endangered, uh, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Sounds like a horrible, horrible research study. <laughs> horrible. <laughs> so uh, now, I guess the biggest question is, of course, uh, how are the condors ingesting that much lead? That is the big question. So, what's happening is California condors are scavengers, right? Um, so they're 100% of their diet is dead animals. And one of, and like I explained before, con they're also extremely intelligent. And the condors in Arizona and Utah discovered a few years, uh, so this was around 2002 when uh, the biologists who were monitoring the population at that time just first started to notice um, what was happening here. Um, and the condors had started to pick up on the fact that every fall on the Kaibab Plateau on the north rim of the Grand Canyon, there were all these hunters out there. And so the hunters are up on the Kaibab Plateau, and they're they're hunting deer. They're hunting mule deer. It's it's actually the, the Kaibab Plateau is actually uh, well known as uh, it, it's 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 a hunt that a, a lot of hunters, uh, I mean, hunt, hunters travel from all across the country to to hunt this one particular region. Um, and uh, the condors figured out that this was a, a food source. Right. And so every once in a while, you know, uh, a hunter will, will shoot an animal and wound it. And then, you know, they're, they're not able to recover a carcass. So, I mean, that's, that's one source of food for the condor. These animals that are wounded and die later on and aren't recovered by the hunters. Um, I mean, that does, it, it happens every once in a while for sure. But the really important source here 
are the gut piles. So when a hunter shoots a deer or an elk or any other animal, in most instances, that hunter will uh, field dress the animal, which basically means that you uh, you remove the innards, you remove the heart, the lungs, the intestines, all that stuff. And that gut pile um, is left in the field. And now lead-based bullets, so any, any bullet uh, used in a high-powered rifle that has a lead core, right? Because most, uh, most high-powered rifle ammunition, um, even if it has a lead core, has a copper jacket. So it, it can be hard to tell, right? But any bullet, any high-powered rifle bullet that has a lead core is going to fragment as it passes through the body of an animal. And the sort of realization that these biologists working on the program had was that the extent of the fragmentation of these bullets is much greater than anyone realized beforehand. And the distance from the wound channel that you can see fragments of lead is also much greater than anybody realized. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the biologists were, uh, you know, observing condors feeding upon these gut piles, right? And then they're collecting these gut piles and bringing them into their lab and x-raying them and realizing that there's hundreds sometimes of almost microscopic fragments of lead in these gut piles. And so C California condors are, they, they forage in social groups. So if one condor finds a carcass, then, you know, oftentimes uh, the whole population gets a, gets a meal, right? Um, and so, you know, you have a population of condors in uh, northern Arizona, southern Utah, that is roughly 70 birds. And you could have half the population or more than half the population feeding on a single gut pile that contains hundreds of tiny little fragments of lead. So all, you know, every single one of those condors is going to get exposed. Uh, whether or not that exposure is going to be uh, lethal um, you know, in most instances, it's, you know, most of the time it's probably not a lethal exposure, uh, but these birds are getting exposed over and over and over again. And over time, it accumulates in the body. Um, and, you know, the, the other uh, factor that plays into this um, that's extremely unfortunate um, is, and those of us, when I was working on the condor, um, when I was working on the condor recovery program in Arizona, we, we like to call this uh, this phenomenon reverse natural selection right so the condors that are the most aggressive the condors are at, that are at the top of the social hierarchy those are the condors that are going to get those first bites they're going to be the first ones on the carcass um, and they're the birds that are going to be the most likely to get a lethal exposure right and especially if you have an animal that's like a, a, a wounded loss animal an animal that was shot and wounded and gets away from a hunter um, you know condors and other scavengers they go for orifices first, you know, because it's hard for them to break through the thick skin of a deer or an elk. Um, and so if you imagine, you know, a bullet wound in an animal, the very first condor that arrives at that carcass, those first few bites are going to just have, they're going to have quite a lot of lead in them. Um, and so the sort of this unfortunate phenomenon that, um, that we were experiencing and, and this still continues to happen, um, across the range of the California condor, both in Arizona, Utah, and in the populations in California, where this is also an issue. The birds that are most fit, the birds that, uh, you know, are part of a well-established breeding pair, um, those are the birds that are dying every year. You're listening to Science for the People, and today we're talking about the fight to protect the California condor with filmmaker Matthew Podolsky. And we'll be back with more of that after this. Thank you. 
Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I've been discussing the California condor and the unexpectedly political battle to protect them with biologist, filmmaker, and founder of Wild Lens, Matthew Podolsky. We're talking about his first feature-length film, Scavenger Hunt. So, of course, not everyone agrees with the explanation that condors are dying because they've ingested toxic quantities of lead that are directly from hunter's ammunition, correct? Yes. Unfortunately, this has become a controversial political issue. And I I don't even know where to start here. Um, (laughs) I guess I'll say that when I... When I first started shooting for my documentary for Scavenger Hunt, and when I was working on the condor recovery program in Arizona, th- this issue had just started to become politicized. When when I started shooting for this film, um, it 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 was a it was a controversial issue, but it was not a national political debate like it is now. Um, and w- what happened soon after I started shooting for the film was. California, the state of California started, started the process of, uh, uh, trying to implement, um, a ban on the use of lead-based ammunition within the range of the condor. This happened in 2008. Um, and the, the governor at the time, Arnold Schwarzenegger, signed that bill into law and it became illegal to use, uh, lead-based ammunition, um, on your hunt. Right. It was still legal to purchase it. Um, it was still le- legal to use it for for other uses. Um, and there was, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think it's pretty safe to say that there was basically zero enforcement. And like I explained before, you know, um, even bullets that uh it, it's it's difficult to tell um, what's inside a bullet if you're just looking at a bullet and you, you know um, so it's it's a difficult it, it's a law that's extremely difficult to enforce because even if you approach a hunter and tell them to pull the bullet out of their gun so you can examine it you're you have no way of knowing what's inside it right because most um, high-powered rifle bullets um, have a copper jacket even if there's a lead core um, so what happened with the passage of this bill and, um, you know, the use of lead-based ammo becoming illegal within the range of the condor in California was um, the National Rifle Association and the National Shooting Sports Foundation um, got involved. Um, and, you know, th- this is something that was a great continues to be a great source of frustration for um, the, the main character in the film Scavenger Hunt, Chris Parrish, who's the director of the California Condor Recovery Program in, in Arizona and Utah. He was my boss when I was working on the crew out there. Um, and, you know, Chris prides himself in his ability to uh, to uh, 
talk to hunters and convince them of the importance of this issue and why they should, you know, make a simple choice to switch from a lead-based, uh, lead-based ammunition to non-lead ammunition. Um, and we're at a point now where there is, you know, there's non-lead ammunition available for, for all calibers. Um, and, you know, at least in, um, in, in California and Arizona where there are condors, you know, it's, it's pretty readily available. Well, that's one of the things that I was wondering about because there's, I'm just wondering what was, was other people's, and I guess I should say the hunter's interpretation of what happened to the condors and, and how, the, how did they account for the lead poisoning if not the ammunition? Because from what I understand, uh, you know, there is sort of a scientific consensus around the, the fact that that's where it's coming from. Right. Absolutely. There is. And so sort of where I was going for this, right, is that there's, you know, two different approaches were taken. There's these two different, well, there's actually more than, you know, multiple release populations for California condors. But if we look at what happened in California and what happened in Arizona and Utah and sort of compare um, the two different approaches that these two different release uh, areas for California condors had towards addressing this issue of lead poisoning, um, it, it's, it's, it's very informative, you know, and uh, that, that was sort of my approach towards producing the film is like looking at these two different approaches towards solving this, this very tricky issue. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, I was talking about, you know, my, my, my former boss on the condo recovery program, Chris Parrish. Um, and, you know, before this situation with the ban in California happened, you know, Chris, Chris had planned talks. You know, he had, he had meetings planned with important people at these groups, at the NRA and at the NSSF. Um, and these, these, these folks, you know, um, associated with the NRA and associated with the NSSF, they were willing to talk. They were willing to have a conversation about this issue. Um, you know, who knows, you know, uh, uh, if they would have been willing to, to, you know, step up and, um, and, you know, uh, take some sort of action, um, to, to help this process of transitioning, um, hunters from lead based to non lead ammunition. But they were willing to have a conversation about it. And when this, process of implementing this ban on the use of lead-based ammunition when that happened in california that was out of the question there couldn't even be a conversation about this right um and so this is not about the science this is this was not this was not about being told what to do (laughs) exactly this is not about the science this is about the fact that Exactly. People don't like being told what to do. And, you know, I think hunters especially, um, you know, uh, th- they don't like the word ban, you know, um, they don't like anyone saying that they're going to restrict, um, you know, uh, the, the type of ammunition that, that they're allowed to use, you know, um, and, and I think the the attitudes that hunters have in these two different areas the attitudes that hunters that i interacted with in arizona and utah um versus the experiences that i've heard about from uh the biologists that were working on the Connor program in california um had um you know that was a big part of my job when i was there you know during hunting season we transition you know we transition from condor biologists to like the out the non-lead ammunition outreach squad and we were out there you know on the the kaiba plateau and in these areas in utah and all it was it was our job to literally drive from hunting camp to hunting camp stop get out talk about the issue with the hunters and we, you know we were doing that um uh but also the the 
uh, State Game and Fish Agency, Arizona Game and Fish, had a whole team of volunteers that were doing that. And so what happened in Arizona, instead of banning um, the use of non-land ammunition in Arizona, um, the state fish and game agency got involved and they were presented, you know, the, the nonprofit that I worked for when I, you know, that manages the population in Arizona, the Peregrine Fund, you know, the Peregrine Fund met with the Arizona Game and Fish Department, presented the evidence, you know, showed them what was happening. And, you know, uh, Arizona Game and Fish Department came up with a plan to uh, implement a voluntary program. So what they did is they found funding to give free boxes of non-land ammunition to every single hunter who drew a tag within this hunt region on the Kaibab Plateau in the north of the Grand Canyon, which is being heavily utilized by the California condors. Um, and within three years of that program being implemented, they started doing this in 2006. Um, and within three years, they had over 80% participation. So over 80% of the hunters on the Kaibab Plateau, just three years after this program was initiated, um, were either using non-land ammunition or they were removing their gut pile from the field. Um, and if you compare that to, you know, this is say like um, 2009, I don't remember the exact numbers of participation from 2009, but it was between 80 and 90% of the hunters um, that were, you know, either using the non-lead or removing their gut piles. You compare that to what was happening in California at the time, a year after the ban, we have no idea, right? Because you can't gather you know, you, you, you can't accurately survey, you know, you can't ask a hunter, are you breaking the law? Are you using, you know, uh, lead-based ammunition on your hunt, despite the fact that it's illegal? Um, whereas in Arizona, they were able to accurately survey because every single hunter is required to pass through a deer check station and take a simple survey, um, and they have no reason to lie. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, e even though we'll, we'll never know for sure, but I think it's, I think it's very safe to, to to say um or i guess it's very safe to speculate that um there are a lot more the the percentage of hunters that are using the nodlet ammunition um uh, or that are taking some action to protect condors and other scavengers in in arizona is dramatically higher than than it is in, in california and you know uh, especially in those few years um after that ban was um was first implemented well, and how did the hunters feel now? Because it, it seems from from your film that uh, people are pretty proud of themselves. Yeah, I mean, the the, the hunters that I interacted with um, in Arizona, um, you know, uh, uh, most of them had seen condors of the Grand Canyon. Um, they thought what we were doing was great. You know, I had hunters ask me all the time, like, well, if it's such, <laughs> I mean, it, well, th th this might seem a little surprising, but I mean, I, it, it happened. I had a few hunters, you know, after I explained the issue, say like, well, if it's such an issue, then why don't they just ban it? <laughs> you know? So, I mean, I think it's, you know, it, 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 I think it's very, it, I think it demonstrates what happens when you take the steps to educate people and do the outreach work before you take, you know, this, uh, you, you, before you take an action like a ban. Right. You know, people don't like being told what to do. Um, and if you take the time to reach out to them and start that process of communication beforehand, uh, I think that you're just going to get better results. Um, all of the interactions that I had with hunters in, in Arizona and Utah were, um, were were very positive. And even even the hunters who, you know, hadn't heard about the issue or weren't using the, um, you know, the free non-lead ammunition that was given to them um, uh through the Arizona Game of Fish program, um, 
were very willing to take steps to make sure that the Connors were going to get poisoned, such as removing their gut pile from the field. Whereas in California, you know, uh, and, and again, I mean, you know, I, I don't have the direct experience there, but the stories I've heard, you know, that is not the case. And when you, you know, you do not want to bring up condors if you're in a hunting camp in California. So I have to ask then, how, how are the condors doing in Arizona now? Unfortunately, condors are still dying of lead poisoning across the board, Arizona, Utah, California. It, it, it continues to be the leading cause of mortality for the population. The, the reason for this is that, you know, uh, while it sounds great that you have between 80 and 90 percent of the hunters participating in this program um, and using non-lead or removing their gut piles from the field, um, if you have even 10 percent of the gut piles from animals that are being harvested out in the fields that contain fragments of lead. You know, like I explained earlier, you can have half the population of condors feeding on one single gut pile. All it takes is one gut pile with 200 almost microscopic fragments of lead and you can poison over half the population. So, you know, even though we, you know, even though, uh, uh, you know, we're seeing these really high participation rates for this voluntary program, Lead poisoning is still a very serious issue, unfortunately. You did. There was one piece in in the film that I thought was interesting. Uh, Chris's family uh, they were they were additionally concerned about their own health. Uh, if if the birds eat the meat and become ill, and we're eating the meat, then that becomes a much different issue. And I was wondering about that because that's definitely more, um, I guess, personally resonant to people. Uh, but on the other hand, it's potentially extremely hyperbolic and unfounded. Um, so that, that does get people to take the issue more seriously, but that could have some pretty negative effects as well. I, I guess I'll say that there is, there is very good research that has been done that proves beyond any doubt that a certain percentage, you know, if you harvest an animal um, with lead-based ammunition, a certain percentage of the packaged meat will contain fragments of lead. Um, and, you know, what that percentage is, you know, it depends on a, a, a number of factors, right? It depends on your shot placement. I mean, obviously, if, you know, if, if you shoot the animal in the head or the neck, then you're, you're probably safe. Um, but, you know, uh, there, there are an, a number of factors, you know, that, that, um, go into determining, uh, determining, you know, uh, uh, how much or, or if any lead will be present. Um, in those packages of game meat. Um, but I mean, that first study, um, that came out, uh, showing that, uh, that, that this was happening, right? That, that fragments of lead were showing up in packaged game meat that hunters were taking home to their families, um, came just after, it came just two years after the, the initial study, um, showing that, uh, or sort of proving, you know, sort of the definitive study proving that, um, the, the lead in condors uh, was coming from um, lead bullet fragments. Um, and so it, it was, uh, I mean, it was, it was almost immediate where, you know, the, these studies were published um, showing the extent of the fragmentation of the bullets and showing the pathways and how, you know, it was be, being ingested by the condors. And, you know, I, I, I think as, I think, I think this happened because um, the biologists who were publishing this research were also hunters, right? You know, Chris, who you see in the film, you know, he's the director of the condor program and he's a biologist, but he's also a lifelong hunter. He was a hunter before he was a biologist, you know? Um, and so it sort of prompted those, you know, the, the, 
that research sort of prompted all these people to start thinking about the meat that they had been taking home to their families um, and that they'd been eating their whole lives. Um, and I mean, that first study was an incredibly, you know, simple study. Um, basically, um, you know, the, the, the researchers took, uh, you know, a random selection of packaged game meat that was being donated to a homeless shelter and they x-rayed it all. And they found that, you know, a shockingly high percentage of those packages of meat contained um, some fragments of lead. Um, and this has been shown numerous times um, in studies uh, that have come out uh, since that time, since that first one was published in 2008. Um, and, I mean, obviously you can't say... Um, with 100% certainty, you know, if you go out and harvest a deer and you're using lead-based ammunition, you can't say with 100% certainty that your that your package meat will have fragments of lead. But if if you look at the big picture, right? If you look at large quantities of meat that are being donated to homeless shelters, a certain percentage of those packages of meat will contain fragments if the hunters were using lead-based ammunition. Um, the question comes, and the sort of gap in the research um, at this current point um, comes from, you know, the, the, the sort of next leap of, well, you know, is that level of lead, that extraordinarily small, you know, these tiny little fragments, like a few little fragments consumed, you know, um, by, by people, you know, is that going to have a detrimental health uh, effect on your health? Um, and, you know, that, that research just hasn't been done. Um, but, I'll, I'll tell you this, that, you know, I talked to a number of, um, of, uh, toxicologists and pediatricians who specialize in childhood lead poisoning, um, for the film, for Scavenger Hunt. And everyone says the same thing, which is that there is no safe level of lead in the human body. There's no such thing as a safe level of exposure. You know, the CDC says that, you know, if if your blood lead level is five micrograms per deciliter or higher, then you have a clinical exposure. That was just recently dropped within the last year or two um, from, you know, the, the previous uh, uh, level that they set. Um, uh, or, you know, or definition of a clinical exposure, which is 10 micrograms per deciliter. Before that, it was 25 micrograms per deciliter. Um, and, you know, there is research out there showing that even subclinical exposures, less than five micrograms per deciliter have, especially, um, uh, especially, you know, if you're talking about uh, a young child, um, have effects on IQ, measurable effects on IQ later in life. So uh, I would, I would still say then the the science is not in on this topic, but that being said, you could potentially avoid all of this just by using non-lead ammunition then? Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, when I talk to hunters about this, it's such a simple decision, you know? Um, like, would you willingly ingest lead? Like, yeah, there's a chance that that lead might not harm you. But given what you know about lead, that it is a dangerous neurotoxin, and all you had to do was make a simple, you know, the simple decision to switch to non-lead ammunition. Um, yeah, maybe you've been using the lead core stuff your whole life. Maybe your grandfather used it. Um, you know, maybe you load your own bullets and you've got that seating depth, you know, narrowed down to just the right um, level. Um you know, uh, you know, I, I've heard all these arguments, right? But in the end, what it comes down to is, are you going to consume that lead, knowing what you know about this element? 
you know, when all you have to do is make a, a, a simple set of changes um, to just avoid that risk. You know, it's, it's a very simple risk to avoid. I'm going to get emails. <laughs> Matthew, thanks very much for being here. <laughs> yeah, you bet. And that was Matthew Podolsky, director of Scavenger Hunt. And you can see the documentary for yourself at the link on our site at scienceforthepeople.ca. After the break, Rochelle will speak with Alex Bond about mercury in Arctic gulls. Stay tuned. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Michelle Saunders. With me is Alex Bond, Senior Conservation Scientist at the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, Europe's largest environmental NGO. He works on the conservation of species in the UK overseas territories, mainly birds of Tristan da Cunha in the South Atlantic. Previously, he was a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Saskatchewan, where he conducted a study on mercury and ivory gull populations in the Arctic. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, as I stated in the intro, you did a study on mercury in the ivory gull population. First of all, why look at the ivory gull? Ivory gulls are really neat. So, in the Arctic, they're the top predator. So, what they do is they eat uh, marine mammal carcasses that things like polar bears haul out onto the ice. And they come along and scavenge it. So, they're right at the top of the food chain. And what that means is they're probably going to be the ones to first show any effects of contaminants because they increase as you go up uh, as you go up the food chain. So we thought they would be a good sort of sentinel species uh, for the Arctic. Now I know the ivory gull is an endangered bird, but how endangered are we talking? What are the numbers like? So in Canada, there's about 500 pairs left, and this is an 80% drop uh, since the 1980s. So you say 500 pairs, so I guess that's a thousand birds total. Just over a thousand birds. So they won't start breeding until they're a few years old. So there's a few pre-breeding individuals floating around. But yeah, it's just over a thousand individuals. Is that a fairly common way to refer to endangered species as in pairs instead of single uh, single creatures? It is for birds because uh, it takes two of them to make a nest. And often what we go out and count are the nests rather than the number of individuals because it's much easier. So we often talk about pairs of birds. Uh, when we do population counts. Ah, so it's a handy way of counting. Exactly. And uh, so how quickly are the gulls' populations declining? Is this over the last century, over the last two years? Um, so we really don't know what went on up until the 1980s. And then in the 1980s, a number of scientists went up to the high Arctic uh, to do the first count of these birds in, in Canada. And this was repeated about 2004, 5, and 6. Uh, and over that period, They've dropped 80%, uh, as I said, so down down to about 500 pairs. 
Um, but those are the, that's the only information that we have on, on how many there are in Canada. That's a big drop and not a long period of time. It is, especially for a species like ivory gall, which can be fairly long-lived. I mean, they'll live 15, 20 uh, years or maybe even longer. So any sharp drop um, is really worrying. And if this keeps up, we're definitely looking at a possible extinction, right? Certainly uh, within Canada. They also breed in Greenland, uh, Russia, and Spitsbergen, sort of a Norwegian island in the Arctic Ocean. But if the population trend continues, yes, the future of ivory gulls in Canada is not looking so great. Do we have any information what the population trends are in some of these other areas where they are? Now, they're really hard to survey because they nest really far apart from each other. It's not like uh, other birds where you can go to a colony and count a whole bunch of nests at once. Um, these guys are really spread out, and they nest in places that are really inaccessible, uh, not easy to get to, for even for scientists. So why look at mercury specifically? So we looked at mercury because some other studies before had found that of all the Arctic bird species, um, ivory gulls had the highest mercury in their eggs. So eggs are a common tool for monitoring contaminants in the marine environment, um, and in other environments too, the Great Lakes, for example. Um, because they're much easier to collect than actual birds. And about 2004, uh, some research showed that these guys had, had higher mercury than any other species of bird from the Arctic. So we thought that might be uh, a concern. Is growing mercury pollution a concern in the Arctic in particular or everywhere in general? Um, everywhere in general, but also particularly in the Arctic. So the way that mercury gets transported is it comes out of um, emissions from power plants, pre predominantly coal-fired, um, also artisanal gold mining is used in those processes, but it gets up into the atmosphere and it's transported around the world, up in the, in the upper atmosphere. And where the Canadian Arctic is positioned and the way that the atmospheric currents work, is that's the main dumping ground for Western North America and Asia for, all of, uh, for a lot of their mercury emissions. So basically what happens is it's not that there's particular plants up near the Arctic area that are dumping a lot of mercury. It's actually sort of more continental. Yeah, it's actually global. So, I mean, there's not much mercury production in the Arctic. Uh, and these birds nest far away from any point source. But because mercury gets transported in the atmosphere and then deposited in precipitation or snowfall and then works its way through the sediment and then into the food chain, um, it's of concern. So the levels of mercury that we find in the Arctic are kind of a good barometer of how we're doing overall on mercury levels globally? Yeah, it's really tricky because each species reacts differently, but uh, Arctic species uh, are particularly well used as indicators of mercury in the environment. Okay, so let's talk about your study specifically. Can you walk us through what you did? Sure. So we went to natural history museums all across Canada uh, and some in the U.S. And we did that because these museums have birds that were collected 15, 20, 40, 100, 150 years ago. And the mercury that's in bird feathers is stable. So I can go back to a specimen from 1877, which was our oldest one, sample a single feather and figure out how much mercury is in there and compare that to a bird that was collected, say, last year, for example. So these natural history museums are a fantastic archive for us to do these historical studies. One of the other things we did, too, was we looked at the bird's diet. Because mercury bioaccumulates, 
uh, and biomagnifies, we thought, well, maybe any change in mercury could be because the birds are eating something differently. So we used uh, elements of carbon and nitrogen, and together these can tell us about the bird's diet. And what we found there was that the bird's diet hasn't changed at all since, uh, since 1877 to present. It's been essentially constant. So that meant that any change in mercury that we found was actually an increase in the environment and not because they switched to, say, a prey species that had more mercury than the one previous. So what did your study find about the levels of mercury compared to previous levels? Well, so we found that over 130 years, so from 1877 to 2007, mercury in adult ivory gulls went up 45 times. So up to uh, just over four parts per million, which is getting close to where we might start to see some physiological effects on individuals. You mentioned that mercury bioaccumulates and biomagnifies. What does that mean? So it bioaccumulates, which means that the mercury goes when it goes into animals, it sort of accumulates like a sponge. And then it biomagnifies, which means as you go up the food chain, you get more and more mercury. I didn't realize how long mercury actually stays in the system. Um, does it just stick around in feathers or in bodies forever? If you sort of had a feather that you knew was from 300 years ago or from 1,000 years ago, would you be able to test mercury levels from that far back? You could certainly test them. The stability of the mercury in the feather, I mean, that's something that's a bit of a gap. We assume that it's relatively stable, and, and so far I think we're right. Um, but when you get into really, really old, more than a couple of hundred years old uh, specimens, then things might get um, a little tricky. But most museum specimens, sort of from about 1850 onward, there's very few from, from before then. So does a gull system process mercury at all, uh, sort of expel it in a way or get rid of it? Or does it just like literally stick around and accumulate until they die? Yeah, so that's what the feathers do. So that's the main way that birds in general get rid of their mercury. Once they ingest their prey, um, the mercury goes into the bloodstream. Some of it goes through the liver. Um, but then it gets secreted in the feathers when birds molt, which they do once or twice a year. And the females will dump some of it into their eggs. As I mentioned before, um, eggs are commonly used as ways to measure mercury and other contaminants in the environment. So those are the two main ways that birds can, can get rid of mercury. So to some extent, birds are adapted to be able to deal with some levels of mercury. Um, I don't know if I'd say they're adapted to. I, the bird's feathers are essentially like our hair. They're made of keratin. And the mercury just happens to like some of the sulfur-sulfur bonds in a couple of the amino acids that make up keratin, because keratin is a protein made of amino acids. So whether to say they're adapted for it, I think, might not necessarily be the case. Okay, so then following the phrase, the dose makes the poison, I'm assuming there's some normal range of mercury in the system that doesn't cause problems. Um, is there this sort of normal background of mercury you'd expect to find in healthy gulls? Um, that'd be a great question, and if I could find a healthy gull, I would tell you. Um, we've been emitting mercury into the environment for long enough that um, to try and figure out what quote-unquote background levels are um, on birds would be pretty tricky. How, would you f how have you tried to figure out what a healthy dose is? Um, yeah, that's not 
Yeah, I don't think anyone's actually figured out what a healthy dose is. So are we presuming that all of the current birds are unhealthy and have an unhealthy dose of mercury? No, we're not necessarily presuming that. There are certain levels at which we think the birds will start to experience uh, physiological effects. Things like um, eggs not developing properly or behavioral differences. Because mercury is a neurotoxin. Um, so once you get sort of in birds that eat fish, once you get above sort of 10 parts per million, um, that's when we figure you're going to start to see effects on, on individuals. But just as in humans, there's so much variation that, you know, to define a, a specific cutoff at which birds with more mercury are, are sick and birds with less mercury are fine and healthy um, is a bit simplistic, unfortunately. So from the standpoint of parts per million, what are we finding in the Arctic gulls as a comparison? So the ivory gulls, the most recent samples we had were just over four parts per million. Okay, so still under the amount where we would expect to start seeing some physiological effects? Um, potentially. Uh, as I said, every, every bird and every species is a bit different. Um, but if we assume that, you know, about 10 to 15 parts per million is where birds like ivory gulls might start to show some effects, um, then we'd expect to see those given the current trend in about 50, 75 years from now. Okay. Have we started to see any symptoms in existing ivory gulls that we suspect may be results of higher levels of mercury? No, but that's because we haven't really looked. Um, so as I said, they've got the highest mercury in their, in their eggs. Uh, they've got a population that's declining incredibly rapidly. Uh, whether this is the smoking gun has uh, not quite the full picture yet, but it certainly casts some, um, yeah, some interesting questions into the future. So what are the effects of higher levels of mercury once they start to become problematic in the bodies of a gull? What kinds of symptoms would you expect to find? So you'll get uh, eggs that don't hatch. Um, so it's an embryo toxin, which means the chicks won't uh, develop properly. Um, and so that means you know, reduced breeding success. Uh, in adults, it's a, it's a neurotoxin, so you'll get behavioral differences. In humans, this manifests in something called minimata disease, um, which, uh, yeah, so the mercury essentially goes into the brain and the spinal column, the fluids around those, um, and causes behavioral differences, essentially, quote unquote, going, going crazy from, from mercury poisoning. The phrase mad as a hatter um, was because hatters, people who made hats in 19th century Europe, um, were exposed to large amounts of mercury. Interesting. I didn't know that's where that phrase came from. Yeah, yeah. So you looked at the ivory gull specifically, but presumably higher levels of mercury aren't just targeting the gull, right? There are likely other populations of animals experiencing problems with mercury as well. Do we have any data or studies on other animals to corroborate what you found here? Yeah, so like I said, mercury affects each species a little bit differently. There was a huge review of uh, Arctic mercury a few years ago. And what makes the ivory gull in particularly uh, the ivory gull in particular worrying is that the rate of increase, about 1.6% uh, over uh, per year, rather, was about twice the average of these 80-odd other studies in things like fish and marine mammals um, and terrestrial mammals and, and other birds. So we, we know that, on average, mercury is going up about 0.8% a year, again, across a whole range of species in the Arctic. Um, and the ivory gulls are about twice that. 
And of course, what everyone will really want to know is how this might affect people. Um, we are also at the top of the food chain, but we're also a lot larger than gulls, so presumably we can handle increased mercury levels. Um, but is there a concern that increased mercury levels could cause health problems for people as well down the road? Um, no, because we've got a really good food safety system. Um, so unlike humans, gulls don't have people telling them that this food is not safe to eat. So they're just chowing down on the closest seal or walrus that they can find. Um, so food is regularly screened for things like mercury um, and anything that's exceeding safety thresholds, which are set by governments um, worldwide, obviously won't be permitted for consumption. Okay, so what's next? What questions are still open? Um, yeah, that's a great question in itself. Um, obviously, the, the next question is whether this actually manifests in further declines in ivory gulls. Um, so the last surveys were about 10 years ago. The other interesting development was the Minimata Convention, which was signed just recently, of which Canada is a party, um, which is a global treaty to reduce and eliminate mercury uh, production and emissions through uh, power generation. So when that takes effect um, and seeing sort of what long-term effects that will have, that will be really interesting to see how that plays out in the Arctic. So what do you think might need to change or what problems would we have to would we have to solve in order to bring some of these mercury levels down? Um, so as I said, the two the two main sources of, of mercury um, are artisanal gold mining. Uh, so sort of small scale gold mining mercury is used to get the gold out of the um, uh, out of the rocks and uh, and coal power generation. So obviously reducing our reliance on on coal energy but also working with the artisanal gold miners to develop cleaner ways for them to extract um, precious metals that don't involve mercury. Alex, thanks so much for being here. Thanks very much. If you want to know more about Alex Bond or his Arctic Ivory Gull study, we've got links to get you started in the show notes for today's episode on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. On our website, you can also find and download all of our past episodes, leave a comment about today's show, or follow the links to check us out on our Twitter and Facebook. You can also find us in iTunes and Stitcher, where you can leave a rating or review and subscribe to have new episodes of the show delivered right to your computer, tablet, or phone. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quibillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell